0: Turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to be looking at the end of uh, chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12 tonight. This is the last sermon in our series through Hebrews 11. The whole chapter is a, an extended meditation on and illustration of what faith is. We've been shown through this chapter, by by example after example, what it means to live by faith in God, what it means that the righteous shall live by faith. Before we look at our text, I want to talk a little bit, I want us to think a little bit about faith. Faith. Often I think that we, as uh, Protestants, can tend to view faith in an abstract noun sense. That is, we can think of faith as a mysterious mental state given to me as a gift, the basis of my salvation. And this, of course, is true, but it's only part of the truth. Faith is not only an abstract noun. Faith is a verb that corresponds to an object. This means that when we talk about faith, we must always think of it in terms of in whom we have faith. I can't recall where I, where I heard this analogy, but... Imagine you are, you're going ice fishing out on a lake. If you have faith that the ice on top of the lake will not crack, it isn't your faith that's going to keep it from cracking. It's the ice. Similarly, when we say we are saved by faith, what we mean is that we are saved by Jesus when, and we trust in him. You have to see both sides of this coin in order to have a healthy understanding of what it means to live by faith in Jesus. To have faith in Jesus means to trust him above all things. And because this is so, you and I can see faith in one another and see faith in the heroes of the Bible, We can recognize faith in one another and encourage one another in the faith and encourage one another to have greater faith. This means that you can both possess faith and grow in faith. I've spoken with young people over the years who can wrestle with anxiety over the concept of faith. Do I really have faith? It's sort of an anxiety loop that they can fall into. Do I really have faith if I struggle with sin? Do I really have faith if I struggle with doubt? Do I really have faith if I struggle to feel the love for God that I know I should feel? It can be hard to give counsel in those moments because there's not a clear answer based on the question. Do I... uh, Some people who... uh, struggle with doubts, leave the faith. And some don't. The proof of faith is not in the existence or non-existence of doubt. It's in the decisions made in the face of doubt. This is also true of sin, even abiding and long-term sin. Again, faith should not be thought of as merely an abstract concept. It is an act of the will. It is a repeated and conscious trust. We don't just possess faith, we live out faith. So the writer of the Hebrews, the book of the Hebrews, can say, see all these great heroes from the Old Testament, you should do what they did, which is, You should trust in the Lord, and He will act on your behalf and deliver you. The purpose of this chapter has been to exhort the reader to keep on trusting in God. Chapter 11 makes a beautiful case for keeping the faith. The need to keep the faith was the reason the author gave for introducing this chapter at the end of chapter 10, verses 35 and 36. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Faith is proved by what you do next, brothers and sisters. Today is hard. Where will you go for help? Maybe today is so comfortable that you've forgotten what it means to need help. What will you do next? In what will you seek for deliverance? The exhortation of Hebrews 11 in answer to these questions is, trust in the Lord, trust in the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is worthy of your trust, and he will deliver you. This exhortation is articulated in our passage for this evening, and as we turn to the text, let's ask the Lord's blessing upon our minds and the words that are used to explain this text. There, This isn't just something we we just do by rote. There is transformative power in the Word of God as we submit ourselves to it in humility and faith. So let's pray for the Lord's help. Lord, thank you for this time that we have together in your Word. We ask that you would make us into good soil that, you, that we would hear your voice and obey as you speak to us. Not because we are smart listeners or because I am a good presenter, but because by your sovereign power you choose to open our minds to your word tonight. And by your word, would you grant to us greater hope, deeper faith, increased joy. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 39. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, The author of the book of Hebrews grounds an exhortation, like we said, to us in all the testimonies that he's given, that he's written about uh, so far in chapter 11. This exhortation is to persevere, to keep running, to keep on in the race of faith until the end. I'm going to summarize this passage uh, with a sentence, and this sentence is going to be our outline for the rest of, of tonight. And here's the sentence for you. Since we can see the promise clearly, we must lay aside every distraction and keep running the race, looking to Jesus. That's our outline, those three, those three clauses. First, since we can see the promise clearly, Verses 39 and 40 summarize two very important truths about our salvation. The first is that there is only one way to be saved. That is, justification by faith alone has always been the way that God's people are saved. The Old Testament saints are not saved in some other way than by faith in Christ. There is not more than one gospel. The story of salvation has always been by faith alone. While you and I look back to the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and place our faith in him, they looked forward to the deliverance from God and had faith in it. The only difference is that they did not possess the clarity of knowledge that we have, or the Holy Spirit in the same way that we do. This is important because it means that there is a sovereign continuity to the history of redemption that demonstrates the awesome mercy and creative love of our triune God. There is one faith, one hope, one baptism. Salvation is to be found nowhere but in Jesus. God's plan from the beginning was the gospel. There is not one gospel for one kind of person and one for another. This means that modern-day Israel, uh, people in modern-day Israel who have not placed their faith in Christ, who have not embraced Christ, must do so in order to be saved. This means that there aren't people out there who are saved apart from hearing the gospel. It means that your kids need to place their faith in Christ in order to be saved. The second important truth from verses 39 and 40, it's very closely related, and that is that the great heroes of the faith trusted in God's deliverance without the benefit of knowing the fullness of the gospel story. That is to say, those who know the faithfulness of God revealed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ have so much greater reason to trust in God than even those who came before. Even Abraham, even Joseph, even Moses. Now you might say to me, how could it be possible that we would have more reason to trust than Moses? And the answer is, because the great deliverance of mankind has been made known to you. The answer to the crisis of history has been shown in Easter glory to us. Moses got to Moses got to see God intervene on behalf of his people and you have gotten to see in this book, the events of Christ, in the events of Christmas, God intervening on behalf of fallen humanity. Moses got to, be the back, got to see the back of God and you and I get to know the personality of God, the love and mercy and strength in the person of Jesus Christ. Moses heard the cryptic, I am who I am, and we have heard, I am the bread of life, the light of the world, the door of the sheep, the resurrection and the life, the good shepherd, the way, the truth and the life, and the true vine. Moses got to rehearse an analogy of the atonement for sin, and we have our sins washed away by the blood of the incarnate Christ. Moses received the law on tablets of stone and we have the law written on our hearts. We have the holy spirit within us uniting us to Christ and mysteriously working within us both to do and to to will and to do, granting faith and strengthening faith, speaking the words of God to our hearts through the word Miraculously turning hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. John Calvin argues that what's happening here in these two verses, 39 and 40, is the traditional rabbinic argument. That is, the argument from the lesser to the greater. So that is to say, if they, these heroes of Israel that we've talked about throughout chapter 11, had... Reason to persevere in their faith in, in God, how much more should you and I persevere knowing what we know? After reading chapter 11, this summary show, points us to we, we should be asking ourselves is God trustworthy? Is he trustworthy in the midst of our hardest situations? Is he trustworthy enough to deliver us in our affliction or challenge us in our apathy? The lives of the saints of old, the word of God, the person of Jesus all emphatically demonstrate, yes, God is trustworthy. Let's move to the second part of our outline since we can see the promise clearly, we must lay aside every distraction and run the race. The author of Hebrews tells us, since we can so clearly see that he's faithful in the lives of those who have trusted in him, we should also trust in him. I don't want you to miss that the main exhortation of these verses, and really of chapter 11 as a whole, is put your trust in him. Put your trust in Christ. Put your trust in him. Imagine you, you woke up on Thanksgiving morning, uh, and this is the day that you were going to run the turkey trot. And the first thing you do is you strap on some extra weight to carry around all day, so much that it hurts. And then you think, you know, what's going to help with this weight that's hurting? I'm going I'm to use this straitjacket that I bought, and I'm going to tie it as tight as possible so that I can't breathe. All right, I guess I'm ready to run. The analogy that's being made here in verse 1 of chapter 12 is of a long-distance race. The Christian's life is a long-distance race. Your doubts and your fears and your anxieties are extra weight that you put on yourself that you don't need to. And the sin that you commit to deal with that weight is actually strangling you. Verse 1 says, because of the hope that you have in what Christ has done for you, you can let go of those fears And you need to do so and also kick out your sin and get on with the race by faith. Isn't it fascinating that these are exactly the things that we're prone to look to when things get difficult? We burden ourselves with anxieties. We medicate ourselves with sin. It's like the writer knows that these are the two forks in the road for the long race called the Christian life. Verse 1 is telling us, Don't go down either of those roads. Don't get distracted by sin or anxiety. Set your eyes on the goal, which is Jesus. I want to underscore that God is not simply saying that we need to have faith in something, anything and all things will work out. He is not saying the goal of life is faith in something. Be like those heroes who had faith in something. No, the, the point is who they had faith in. Faith in faith is nothing. Faith in Jesus is everything. The point is not that they trusted, but it is who they trusted. Having faith in does not just mean thinking abstractly about your sin and needing to rest in Christ. It does absolutely mean that. But it also means whatever crisis or hardship you are facing in the here and now, in your life, in time, you should trust God for your deliverance from it. This does not mean that everything that you want is going to happen exactly the way that you want it. It does not mean that you will be rich and healthy uh, if you just believe. If it did mean those things, it wouldn't be called trusting in God. Not being the one in control is an essential component of faith. Not only should you persevere because eternal life is your goal, you should persevere because God is with you and working on your behalf Now, today, He is with you. He is for you, working all things together for your good. Having faith means that in the best of all possible ways, God will, with certainty, deliver you from your hardship. All right. And the third part of our uh, outline sentence tonight. Uh, Since... We can see the promises clearly. We must lay aside every distraction and run the race. Looking to Jesus. We are are meant to see, verse 2 of chapter 12 says, uh, we are meant to see that Jesus is the ultimate example of what it means to act in faith. Let's read it. Verse 12, starting in verse 1. Chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Looking to Jesus as our example of what it means to act in faith. What did he do? He, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. I think it's possible for us to get inoculated through repetition to the severe indignity that Christ endured while he was here on earth. The infinite God, the maker of all things, condescended to become incarnate on our behalf. That is, out of love for us, rather than destroy us, he became one of us. If you you think of a beekeeper becoming a bee to rescue his own bees, you haven't even begun to understand the degree of condescension. The gulf between the form of life called God and the form of life called human is incalculable. What's more... He was born to a humble family, raised in a humble town, and trained to make a humble living. When uh, the author of a book is brought to a, the premiere of a movie based on their book, they make a big deal out of them, and they bring them in a limo, and they thank them for their great ideas, and, oh, it's, you know, it's a big, uh, glorious event. But when the author of life came to earth, he was placed in a manger, in a, in a cow food dish. What's more, when Jesus came into his ministerial purpose, he was despised by those who should have received him. Israel knew enough to know that he was coming and stirred up by their leaders, they still yelled, crucify him. Pilate could tell clearly that something was wrong with this picture, but he couldn't be bothered to lift a finger to make it right. In Jesus' time, the religious conservatives and the religious liberals and the oppressive government all joined together to destroy him. What's more, he was put to death in the worst way among the worst of criminals. Basically, he was equated with the worst of sinners, unjustly beaten and mocked, and then put to death. The one who designed the arms to have the strength and the lungs, throat, and mouth to form the words was beaten with one of those arms, and mocked with one of those mouths. Why did he do all that? Why did he put himself through that? This text tells us it was for the joy set before him. Stop for a minute and consider this statement. It was for the joy that was set before him. Consider, the redemption of mankind, that is you and me, is a joy to the Son of God. Making God's mercy and goodness known for all ages through the glorious gospel is a joy for Jesus. Don't take it from me. Isn't that what the text says? To Jesus, you are a joy enough to make this cost worth paying. As they hit him with the 38th lash, he thinks to himself, I can keep going today because when I get to the end, I get my people. That's you. The author here says, Christian, follow your leader. Do what your master did. Look to the joy that is set before you and endure what today has. Keep running. Keep acting in faith. Keep throwing off sin. Keep trusting. Keep obeying. Keep loving. Don't miss this. He endured, and what was his reward? His reward was you. You endure, and what do you get? You get him. Yes, you get heaven. Yes, you get joy everlasting in a world without sin and suffering. But those things are a byproduct of who he is and what he's done. Those are the things that, that's what it means to move in with him. You get him. He is the founder and protector, perfecter of our faith. That is, he is the beginning and the end of our faith. He is the starter and the finisher of our faith. He gives it to you and he will bring it to the end. He made a way for you to be saved, and he keeps and preserves his own. He is the object of our faith, and he is also the outcome of our faith. He is the means of our faith, and he is the goal of our faith. I was told a story once, I'm not sure if it's true, I assume it's not, sort of fits the illustration too perfectly, but it illustrates uh, very well what it means to have faith, as well as anything I've ever heard. The story is, a boy climbs out his bedroom window onto the roof of his home because there is a fire on the first floor of his home. The rest of the family on the first floor gets out, and they are safe. But the boy is stuck on the roof, and the fire is quickly spreading. The smoke is thick where he is, and he can't see anything other than the smoke. But he can hear his father calling to him from the lawn and saying, Come to the edge of the roof and jump. The boy walks to the edge, but the smoke is too thick, and he says, I can't see you, I don't know where to jump. The boy and the father says, jump off right where you are, I can see you. What we are asked to do in the Christian life is to trust that our loving father can save us. Do you trust your father? You should. He is worthy of your trust. The the hall of fame of faith listed in chapter 11 is less a story about the faithfulness of these heroes, and rather it is a story about the faithfulness of God to these heroes. Do you see that what they did, what we've been told all through chapter 11, is Jump off the roof into the hands of their father? Do you hear them saying to you, you also should trust in this good father? Well, you you may say, I'm anxious about something. I'm struggling to have faith in a certain circumstance. I'm worried. I'm fearful. Your your faith is not dependent on how you feel. It's not an emotion. It's an act of your will. It's a repeated and conscious trust in a person, not in a force, not in fate, but in a person, a person who loves you, who knows what's best for you and is working all things together for your good. Of course, it is the case that in our finiteness and brokenness, we will struggle sometimes to believe. The Bible says, have faith, have faith that these things are true. And we remind ourselves and we remind one another that he is worthy of our trust and he will bring all things to a glorious completion. Okay, you say, but I'm still scared. If only there was some proof that this Father loved me like he loved those Old Testament saints, then I know that I could be sure. Romans 5, verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Romans 8, verses 37 through 39. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors, beyond all doubt, that the Father not only loves us, but can be trusted above all things. Place your faith in him. Persevere. Stick with him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, We do not deserve your love. We do not deserve your mercy. We do not deserve to be your chosen. But we see and we affirm that your condescension, your life, your death, and your resurrection demonstrate in power and certainty the steadfast, unbreakable unshakable love that you have for your people. And we stand in awe because you have made a way for us to be saved. You have planned it from all eternity. And we ask that you would grant to us perseverance to run this race to the end. We thank you that those whom the Father has given to you, cannot be taken from your hand. We rest in you, Lord Christ. In your name, amen.